Our next guest wants children to experience the miracle and magic of childhood through intentionally designed indoor and outdoor play spaces and environments. She is an international consultant, author of six books, a designer of two educational furniture collections. She has designed and taught university courses on early learning environments, collaborating with architects, interior designers, and educators to create extraordinary places and possibilities for children and students of all ages. Today, we're going to be chatting about how childhood is engaging experience, understanding the process of children's exploration, creating environments for children to thrive in a positive childhood experience, and so, so much more. Um, the most important thing to mention, it is an absolute honour and pleasure to call Dr. Sandra Duncan a great friend um, and an inspiration. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Sandra. My pleasure. Um, bit of backstory. Um, where were we? Florida, Orlando, World Forum for Early Education and Care. And, um, yeah, we teamed up. We did tours together. Um, <laughs> we reflected. Um, it was absolutely great and so inspiring. So I've been mentioning you to everyone ever since. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and I, I'm doing the same, Lucas. So, Thank you so much. As we start with all of our guests on Play It Forward, with a walk down memory lane. So where did you play as a child? Where did I play as a child? I played my most frequent play place was a willow tree in the backyard. But it wasn't my favorite play place. My favorite play place was in St. Joe, Michigan, at the St. Joe Pier. And my mom and dad used to take my brother and myself to St. Joe, Michigan, and we would go to the beach. And while my mother and my brother stayed on the beach, he was five years younger than I am, um, my dad and I went out on the pier and we would go fishing. And I love to fish. I still like to fish. Last week I was in Wisconsin fishing and we would go out on the pier and we would catch fish and I would have the time of my life on the fishing pier. So that was my favorite, but it was a very special time. You know, we, we, we didn't go there, but maybe three times a summer. So if you ask me about my most favorite, it's St. Joe Pier. If you ask me about my everyday favorite place, it's in the willow tree. And I used to climb up on this branch and pretend like I was the queen and my baby dolls were on the ground and I was the ruler and the master of my baby dolls. And I was high up on the branch. I recently went back and looked at that tree. Of course, it's grown quite a bit. It's still there. And the branch is much higher, I'm sure, because of the years that have passed. But I I know the branch wasn't very high. I just thought it was high because I was small. Yeah. And it's nice to know it's still there as well. Yes, it's still there. Yeah. I had a recent um, similar experience. We lived on a hill and we'd go cut down the hill and it was like the hill. We've got to go down it. And it was so intense. And then I drove there recently and I was like, is this the right street? I swear it's like <laughs> 10 times steeper than this. The same thing like... happened to me. Yeah. The same thing happened to me once. Um, I used to, my dad and my mom used to take my brother and I to, um, 
sliding on a hill, winter sliding on the snow. And it mm. was in a park. And at the time, it just the hill just seemed so, so high. And when I go down on the slide on the, um, not the slide, but the, uh, what's that called? The, the sled. The sled. When I go down on the sled, it would just seem to go so fast. And, and when I got to the bottom, I was so grateful that I got to the bottom without crashing and burning. And I went over there, you know, a, several years ago and I looked at the hill. It didn't seem very high at all <laughs> as an adult, but as a child, it would seem really, really high. And I was always so proud of myself that I was brave enough to fly down this with the sled on that big, big hill. Yeah. So. And, and you of all people would um, be able to articulate and have the reasoning behind the, the um, perception of these experiences as children, because obviously you've spent years now de deconstructing and dissecting the theory behind how children engage with environments. Um, I'm really keen today to jump into the article you wrote um, with Rachel Larimore, um, and we'll get, we'll get into that. But I think we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't share and get a bit of an understanding of your journey into becoming um, Dr. Sandra Duncan and um, being a consultant right across the world for play. How did that happen? Yeah. What sparked the um, germination of that seed? Mind you, I had no, no high school um, prep, college prep courses. I was in secretarial school. I could type really fast. I could take shorthand. Um, I went to the business math um, classes. I was ready to be a secretary, and that was going to be my claim to fame. And so I filled out the application. I brought it back in. Long story short, I was accepted at Western Michigan University. And then the question became, what am I going to study? And so the first thing that came to my mind was, I think I'll study to be a teacher. And so that's what I did. And several degrees later, um, I finally, you know, have become a teacher. And that's how I got started. I really didn't think about becoming a teacher or being a teacher at all, at all. I just sort of happened into it. And I'm so happy that I did because I love young children. I love working with young children. I love the um, idea of helping teachers help children become their very best. So I'm happy that Mrs. Gonzales stopped me in the middle of the hall of Portage High School and encouraged me to go to college. I'm glad she did as well. How did you get into do it, like dissecting design? Oh, wow. This is another interesting story. Um, I had been, I had retired and I kind of got tired of being retired and you know, I cleaned out my underwear drawer and polished my doorknobs and I was all organized and I was basically pretty bored. And I decided to come out of retirement and I decided to call a friend and colleague, Lois Minton Rosenberry, and um, ask her if she might want to write a book. And because I had been in the publishing world with Scholastic and some other um, publishers, like publishers of 
not only magazines, but publishers of curriculum and um, educational materials, I decided, I thought I knew a lot about publishing, but really I didn't. But anyway, I called Lois and I said, Lois, would you like to write a book? And she said, okay, what kind of book do you want to write? And I mentioned several things like multi-center management because I owned several centers, a chain of centers actually, and she also owned a chain of childcare centers. And I mentioned several things like multi-center management, maybe something about curriculum, maybe something about children's behavior. I just mentioned a bunch of ideas and she didn't like any of them. And finally, I landed on this idea. Whenever I would go into Lois's classrooms, her classrooms felt different. They sort of hummed. When you walked in, the children were all actively engaged. They were dispersed around the classroom. You could see that they were focused. They were very busy and working on whatever they were working on. And it just felt different. The classroom felt different. So I said to her, well, why don't we work on something with environments? And she said, okay. And so um, that was how Inspiring Spaces for Young Children was born. The reality of the whole story is Inspiring Spaces for Young Children, which puts forth seven principles of design. We sat around Lois's dining room table. There were five of us that um, authored the book and we sat around her dining room table and we started to think about what makes Lois's environments different. What are the characteristics of Lois's environments that allow or provide opportunities for children to engage with such intensity? How does that happen? And so what we did is we came up with those seven principles of design. It was done quite by accident, sort of by the the feeling uh, that we had, um, sort of by our gut feeling. And never once did we mention interior design. Never once did we think about um, what the the design, the actual physical design of the classroom. We only thought about characteristics of what made her environments different from other environments. So we came up with things like texture adds depth, color, you know, color influences, um, nature inspires. We came up with these seven principles quite by accident, really. And after the fact is when we realized that we were really putting forth a message that was quite different than any message that had ever been put out there before, we, we realized that we were asking teachers to not look at functionality of the classroom, like how the classroom is laid out, like put the art center next to water or, or um, put the black center in a corner so children don't trip over the construction. We, we asked them not to look at functionality which is a traditional way of designing classrooms, but we ask them to consider their classroom from an aesthetic viewpoint. And wow, that's quite a different thing that anybody had ever asked teachers to do before. And it was sort of a different perspective on designing classrooms. 
but a very much needed perspective on designing classrooms. And since we, we developed those seven principles of design, we, I now know that aesthetics is extremely important in children's learning and children's focus and children's attention. I know that that is extremely important now. At the time, I didn't really know that. At the mm. time, it just seemed like this was the right thing to do, is to ask teachers to think about beauty in their classroom. But now we yeah. know, you know, Dr. Ruth Wilson has done all the research on how children need beauty in their lives. And we know that beauty promotes wonder. If you have something beautiful like a pine cone, for example, you have a tendency, if you're a four-year-old, to perhaps observe that pine cone or feel that pine cone or pay attention to that pine cone with much more intensity than you would a plastic pine cone, for example. And yeah. so we know that beauty promotes wonder and wonder promotes a sense of, of learning and wonder promotes children's observation skills for sure. Sure. Yeah. So if I'm looking at that pine cone, for example, and I observe it and my observation skills increase and are, are better because of my way of looking at that pine cone, mm. then I'm better able to detect the difference between a lowercase d and a lowercase b. So yeah. the, the whole thing at the beginning was we just wanted to get a message out about what made Lois's centers and classrooms different than other classrooms. And it ended up being a truly unique perspective on designing classrooms. And that's designing classrooms, not from the functionality viewpoint, but from the aesthetic viewpoint. Yeah. And something that stands out to me is it um, promoting that, that wonder, like in, inspires that inquiry. Oh yes, absolutely. No, no doubt about that. Yeah, and and even as a playground designer, one of our key elements, is, as we've discussed many a time, is is that wonderment. All right, where is the sense of wonder and awe um, that demands our full attention? That that demands our attention in such a way that we can learn to block out the world and concentrate on the thing that's in front of us. Right, and transcend and the doing into the being. Yes. And we also know like wonder in many respects is a lot like novelty mm. because it's something novel. It might be a kumquat, for example, and, you know, a child's never seen a kumquat. So the child um, is one in wonderment about this kumquat. Yeah. What is this thing? You know, what does it do? What is it something I eat? Is it something I play with? What does it do? And that, that wonderment and that novelty is actually a sense of, of learning when, mm. and it's a motivator for learning. When I was writing the, um, my newest book, The Honeycomb Hypothesis, I really delved into Piaget. And one of the things through all of my degrees that never was brought forward in any of my courses on Piaget was Piaget, we all know about disequilibrium, right? That mm. what happens with disequilibrium, but nobody ever pointed out to me that disequilibrium is the motivator for learning. 
So novelty, that means novelty is the motivator for learning. If I have something that I've never experienced and I, I've never seen before or I've never touched before or I've never smelled before, if I have something that's novel to me, I am greater disposed to be in wonderment about it. And that wonderment is the novelty. And the novelty, according to Piaget, says that's the motivator for learning. So when we design classrooms or playgrounds with the same old, same old, you know, you're really not promoting learning because you're not promoting any sort of disequilibrium with the child. And therefore, um, you're not promoting learning. Yeah, I I just love the idea of novelty, and that yeah. novelty is the motivator for learning. I love a quote from Claire Ward, and I check in with it quite frequently. And she mentioned that a child must be able to question their place in space. Yes, yes, which, which sums up that nicely. It's like that disequilibrium is like, what what's happening? Where? How do I fit in this? How does it's not that prescribed and you, you touched on it earlier. That's that that pine cones are the pine cones are real experience. It's and the you know the the plastic resource or you know the default resources that we buy from a catalog are just a replica of that real real experience that the child having. And the real experience offers that complexity, offers that flexibility to be able to delve into it, to see it in different ways, um, to see it as different things opposed to the more prescribed default this is your resource and this is how I'm going to entertain you. Right. And yeah, I love that. Take your clown shoes off. Right, Lucas? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not wearing clown I, I shoes. Really, I believe that in our traditional, the traditional classroom that children have every opportunity to lose their sense of childhood because mm. in the traditional classroom right now, there's plastic galore. Yeah. There's one-use um, toys. There's screens. There's all sorts of things that are in the classroom that are inherent in the traditional classroom that cause children to lose their childhood. They lose the magic of being a child because of our traditionally designed classrooms. And that's worrisome. And um, I know, I love the book. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's by um, Erica Christoph. Christophus, I think, is it's the importance of being little. And yeah. she talks about in this book why it's important to be little and why we should let children be little. Yeah, let them we'll experience that, childhood. We'll jump in there. We'll um, put that link in the show notes. So look in the show okay. notes, click it, we'll put it there. Okay. I will um, send you the resource for that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it's kind of like, seems like it's this, the word that comes to mind is like the mechanization of childhood. It's like you're a part of this machine and you, you fit in. You fit into this system of sequence almost. And um, it's that very lineal, lineal track. It's this linear thinking. And as we know, environment creates behavior. 
So if you've got a lineal, straightforward environment, um, we're framing that child with their mindset in that lineal framed environment. But as we know, when we step out into the real world, the real world's not lineal. Like, you know, that, that duality of life, yeah, it can be lineal, but it can move sideways. It can be abstract. It can, it moves quickly. I think we're, we're also as, um, as a whole, our, our, our world in early childhood is promoting this institutionalization. It's promoting it because we're governed by numbers nowadays. It's, do we have the right number of blocks? Do we have the right type of blocks? Do we have the right number of books, the right type of books? Everything is numbers. And we're governed by, in the United States anyway, by the Eckers and the Sackers and the mm. Sackers and all of those observational rating scales that only measure, for the most part, stuff. Yeah. And I think our classrooms need to be more than stuff. Yeah. They need to be m- more emotion-based. And mm. I've developed a framework that's kind of fun. Um, it's called the potential place. And, it, and the framework calls for the idea of thinking about designing your classroom, not just from the child standpoint and not just from the functionality standpoint, but thinking about the intersection between the child and the environment. So if you think about a Venn drawing with that intersection between the circles, Mm -hmm. so I think the potential place and where we should be designing is the intersection of the child with the intersection of the space. And within that intersection, we should include opportunities for children to experience what I call spatial conditions of emotion, like Mm. the spatial condition of emotion for kinship or power, or thrill, or awe, or intimacy. And so I think that will help us if we start to think about design, not just in the terms of stuff, quantitative stuff, yeah. but mm. start thinking about the environment in terms of the intersection of quantitative and qualitative, which is children's emotions, and then give children opportunities to experience emotion like power, for example. You know, children are don't have a lot of power in their lives. When they get up in the morning, the mom and dad tell them what to put on, what to eat for breakfast, where they're going to go that day. When they get to school, the teacher says, sit in that desk, open to page whatever. We children don't have power. Mm-hmm. And yet they, when they're given power, they can they can use that power to develop autonomy, self-actualization, all sorts of things are important when you give children opportunities for power. Like even the idea of moving the chair from underneath the table and, oh yeah, you could move it over here and you can make a campfire circle with your friends for conversation, or you can turn the chair upside down and make its legs into a cradle for your baby you have the power to do that. Mm-hmm. And giving children power is really important for them to experience that emotional condition of that idea of power. That I'm powerful, I'm competent, I can do things, 
I can create things. Yeah. 100%. And we're doing the children a disservice by trying to kick that can down the road, so to speak, in the terms of learning <laughs> and saying, well, you know, delaying that. And then you're a teenager and saying, oh, now you can make your own decisions. Now you can act like an adult. And we know through research, they just look to their peers for the answers. They're not actually problem solving themselves. They're yeah. just borrowing these concepts of others. And we know how that could turn out. I know, I know myself as a teen looking to my peers for great solutions for things, probably not a great place to look. <laughs> yeah, it goes right along with the idea of choice and the power yeah. of choice. Yes. You know, that children that are able to experience the idea of cho making choices, their own choices, mm. when they're younger, if they are able or given the opportunity to make choices, it's been found by research that they make better choices when they're older. So mm. why shouldn't we give children a choice of seating? Yeah. Why is it always just one chair or maybe a little couch or maybe a bean bag? Why isn't it a variety of chairs? And why do they always have to sit on the hard chair? Why mm. can't they decide where they want to sit and what they want to sit on? That's an example yeah. of power of choice. Yeah. And as, as a person that considers the environment, I just don't think the common, um, not common for the, the, the main perception of learning, we, we don't, we overlook the environment so often. We're looking at, we're too busy looking at the outcome of the learning experience. And, you know, as Stuart Brown says, if it's, if the outcome is more important than the process, it's not play. And we know we learn through play. So if we're focusing on the outcome, I hear that, well, they're not learning properly if we're focusing on the outcome. Right. We're overlooking the environment in which that happens in. And we're totally ignoring emotions. We're totally mm. ignoring the emotional factor of designing environments. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to be able to figure out how can you make something that's very qualitative, like power and thrill and awe and intimacy and kinship, those, how can, how can you quantify those? Well, you can do it in a lot of different ways. You can give children power um, by offering them choices. Mm. You can give children the idea of um, experiencing the, the kinship by giving them benches, because we know from the research that children collaborate and communicate and share their materials with each other when they're on a bench more frequently and with better intensity than they're sitting in individual chairs. So yeah. we can quantify a lot of the qualitative concepts by, by merely using spatial conditions of emotion to do that. So I'm excited about that framework and I'm hoping that people will begin to understand that stuff is stuff important yes yeah. but is also emotions important absolutely yeah well you can't have that um intellectual development or social development without the emotional base and understanding first mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it reminds <laughs> you know it, absolutely and it reminds me of the whole idea about 
with emotions with the um, article that I wrote with Dr. Catherine Murray um, mm. from Australia. And it's, it was called A Calm Brain is a Thinking Brain. And, mm. you know, we talk about you have to you have to suffice with the emotion level of the brain and the survival level of the brain before you can ever get to thinking. And I yeah. think in our classrooms, we only think about thinking and we don't think yeah. about designing for emotions and survival. Yeah. And, you know, everyone knows, like, when you're in this stressed state, adult or child, if you're in that stressed state, the thought of adding another drop to your very full cup, it's mm -hmm. the feeling of that is overwhelming. Yes. To add another yes. thing and another thing and another thing. And we wonder why children are having um, emotional processing challenges when we're just, we've got that little dropper just going, one more drop, one more drop, one more drop. Yeah. And then bam, <laughs> the <laughs> world falls apart. Absolutely. Right. Um, just to jump back slightly, inspiring spaces, seven steps. I'm sure people are like, well, what are the seven steps? Um, the the seven, the seven principles of design. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, well, one of them is nature inspires beauty. Yes. And that is um, the idea of infusing nature in all spaces and in all places in your classroom, not just in your science area. Mm. Um, another one is texture adds depth. And that is the idea of uh, research that tells us that children who have more experiences with kinesthetic and visual texture become better readers. And mm -hmm. so the idea of including textured um, uh, rugs or textured placemats or hanging a rug on the wall. And so mm -hmm. children can, having textured rug on the floor, they, they can feel it, but also um, some texture visual texture. So texture adds depth is one. Um, there's a principle about color and the whole idea about how primary colors negatively impact children's behavior and learning. And I just recently read this incredible study about proximal and distal um, overly decorated classrooms. And the researcher um, put on the table, this is kindergarten children, put on the table an over-decorated um, piece of wallpaper, I think it was, and then she put that same piece of wallpaper on the wall. And then she measured children, a ch child or children's attention and focus to detail and completion of task and what she found. And then she took the, the, the distal and proximal um, overly decorated space away and she just had a completely white background and what they found the researchers found was that children were able to better concentrate in an environment that was not overly decorated or overly simulated because they were able to focus in on which yeah. leads me to this other interesting idea that I always am wanting to talk about is I don't understand why we put those heavily decorated rugs in our classroom. The ones that have bright primary colors and shapes and and animals and the letters of the yeah. alphabet. We saw a few of those on our tour, didn't we? The whole world <laughs> we is like, on this rug on the floor. The classic ABC rugs with giraffes yeah. and everything. But if you, 
think about that if if you have this overly decorated rug with ABCs and primary colors and stuff on this rug, and then a child opens up a storybook on the rug, you're asking that child to filter out that rug and only focus on the storybook, which, by the way, is about this usually primary colors. So you're mm. asking that child to do something that is almost beyond that child in order to be able to focus on on the storybook. And so one of the ideas in overly decorated classrooms is try to figure out how you can eliminate those overly decorated rugs yeah. and replace them with calm colors, with yeah. um, plain colors, and not with a lot of decoration on them because mm -hmm. you're really asking children to do something of the impossible and yeah. you don't even really understand it. You don't think about it. Put that no. rug down and say, oh, this is great. It's not. Yeah. I'm happy to say they're um, very, they're a rarity. They're in, those rugs are an endangered species in Australia, I'm happy to say, uh, oh. <laughs> which is nice. Um, a really aha moment that I had that you shared while we were doing some tours was around we have a tendency within our indoor environments to stick everything to the outdoor outside walls. Oh, yeah. Um, can you run us through that um, and sure. the effect the effect on the overall usability of the space when we just put all our shelves and everything to the outside? Sure. Well, I call that the chocolate bar design. <laughs> I actually wrote an article with um, Lauren McGee. Uh, yeah, Lauren McGee. Um, she she's an architect but um the chocolate bar design is like you know how hershey hershey bar is divided into what nine nine little squares right and you can eat a little piece of the square of the hershey bar well that's what we do in our classroom so just imagine a hershey bar it's got a top row three squares a middle row three squares and a bottom row three squares so if you imagine a classroom with the entry classroom door on the short end of the Hershey bar. So um, what we usually do is we design, as you come in the entry door, you put your cubbies to the left and your cubbies to the right. And then there's a pathway or a walkway in front of the cubbies. And then we start lining up our learning centers along the wall. That's traditionally how we do it. Like if you think of the chocolate bar, it's a learning center in each square of the chocolate on the top row and then on the bottom row. We do that for a variety of reasons. Most of all, I think it's because that's what we're used to and that's what we're comfortable with. But there's a whole bunch of issues that are attached to when we slam our furniture against the wall. One of the things that we additionally do in um, is not only slamming our furniture against the wall, but we we surround the learning center with shelving units. So if you think one wall, one the one side of the learning center is the wall. The two sides of the learning center are two shelves, and then sometimes we even put a shelf in front of the learning center. So that means there's only one way in to the learning center and one way out. 
And if that's the block center and I'm a little four-year-old and I want to build this big castle and a big moat, I can't hardly do it because my shelving units are stifling me. I can't build past those shelving units because that's my boundaries. So the, so the problems in slamming your furniture against the wall are, are multiple problems. And then ever, First, everything gets pushed to the middle and then you end up with that clump, as you were yep, saying. Yep. Everything gets against the wall. We line our, our learning centers with shelves. There's only one way in, one way out, so we can't expand our play if we want to. And that creates congestion, mm. and that creates um, children not being able to really um, involve themselves in complete and utter freedom of movement and freedom of joy. And movement is a big thing to me. So mm. the idea would be pull out the ends of the shelving units from the wall two or three feet. Pull them out so there's breathing room and so children can enter the center from three sides, from the front and from by the wall on either side of your shelving units. So the, the, and the other problem with shoving everything against the wall is let's pretend like you're designing a, um, a, a kitchen, the kitchen area, the home living area. So you put your refrigerator, your sink, and your stove against the wall, right? That mm. means that... If I'm a child playing in the learning center with the furniture, with the refrigerator, the sink, and the stove against the wall, that means I'm playing at the equipment. I'm not playing with the equipment. I'm standing mm -hmm. in front of the equipment. I'm not. I'm not interacting really with anything but the front of the equipment, and I'm also facing the wall. I think it's better if you pull that equipment out, put it in the middle of a rug, anchor it in the middle of a rug. If you're concerned about safety, back it up with a shelving unit. Mm -hmm. So you have a shelving unit facing one way. It's backed up with the refrigerator, the kitchen, the sink, and the stove on the other side facing the other way. And then because it's in the middle of the rug, you can play around the furniture and you if increased multiplied the play surfaces by a lot mm. and you also have increased the children's opportunity to play with all four sides the top the bottom the, the sides you've increased that ability you've also increased the opportunity for freedom of movement you're no longer confined to those shelving units now you can expand your dramatic play out past the rug if you want to, because nothing's confining you. And I'm a little mm. child, and I get to navigate around the furniture and play with the furniture. So the whole idea would be to break up that chocolate bar design and figure out what I call a 360 play design, which means mm. how can you design the areas so children play around and interact with it rather than play at it. Yeah. And it, it links to one of our philosophies about we want to create environment, not present resources. Right. You're presenting resource, you stick it against the wall. Here you go. Here's your entertainment. 
Um, but when you create an environment, it gives that agency, that flexibility, and then allows that imprint of the child to make make that environment a representation of them and where they're at. Right, exactly. And also, don't for, I think we have a tendency to forget the valuable top, the top part of the shelf. We mm. just sort of leave it there and junk accumulates on it and we don't use it for anything useful. But if your shelves are low enough, create little um, mini stories on the top of the shelf where you might one day put a piece of AstroTurf on the top of the shelf mm. and you put a wicker basket and turn it upside down or give some tree cookies and bring the dinosaurs from the black corner and just kind of put it there and see what happens mm. with children. Also use your shelving units, um, the actual shelf for mini stories. Yeah. Play stuff to play with and little um, push button lights, battery powered lights under the shelf and make mm. it a place for them to play. Not just a place for them to store, for us to store. Yeah. We should think of shelves as a place to interact and a place to play. I like that framing. Once again, just increasing the value so much. Um, we haven't yet got to the article that you wrote with Rachel Laramore. Um, can you give us, we, we'll put any, anything you mentioned there about the million and one um, articles that you have written because you love to do it and you're very good at it. Um, we'll put those in the show notes, but could you give us an overview of that article that you wrote there with um, Rachel that you sent through to me? It really sparked my interest. Um, it, thanks to Rachel, um, the idea kind of percolated with us and, um, we called it, um, helicopter teachers. And the idea about it was that I, I believe Rachel and I believe that we have a lot of helicopter teachers in amongst us and helicopter teachers are those teachers and practitioners who are constantly hovering over children and over managing them and over managing their lives and they're controlling their time and they're controlling their choice and it seems like helicopter teachers just have an uh, um a, an urge to chat to channel children and we talked about the idea of the helicopter have you ever seen from a maple tree, they're called whirly gigs yeah. or helicopters, yeah. those things that fly down, the tree pods that fly down. Well, we use that analogy in this article in talking about what helicopter teachers do and why they do it and what what should they be thinking about. And rather than being a helicopter teacher, what should they be thinking about? And a lot of it was that helicopter teachers there's an absence of choice and that choice not only continues in the inside environment but the outside environment you have to go down the slide you have to ride your tricycle in one direction and um, even loose parts sometimes children are not allowed to touch them so this absence of choice with helicopter teachers and then we thought about how Samaras that's that's a technical name for helicopters. Whirly gigs yeah. is Samara. And that they fly, and thanks to Rachel, she knew this, that they fly further when whole. And our whole idea is that so do children fly f 
further when whole. And although if you have a broken wing Samara, it can kind of hit the ground and it could possibly survive because it hit the ground in the right place and it had the soil and the water and whatever it needed to be nurtured to grow into a, a maple tree. It could survive, but perhaps it couldn't thrive. And our whole idea mm -hmm. with that particular section of the article was we need to give children opportunities to thrive and not merely survive. And we feel that children sur can survive when the solitary focus is on cognition, when we teach the alphabet, the shapes and the numbers and, you know, all of that stuff that we feel compelled to, to teach that they, children can survive. Yeah. They can probably survive in an environment like that, just like the broken wing Samaras survive, survives. Yeah. But can they yeah. thrive? I, you know, I just don't think that they can. And we feel that, and we tried to point out in the article, that children grow best when all aspects of their development, social, emotional, physical, and cognitive, are equally nourished. So the yeah. one, that, though, I like the best is, there were three things, three ideas. Samaras fly further when whole. Samaras are unique, and so are children. But the one I like the best is Samaras grow where they land. Mm -hmm. And so do children. And I think that when we design environments, not only inside environments, but outside environments, we design for groups rather yeah. than also thinking about individuals. And I read about this really interesting study with pumpkin seed fish. And the, the researcher studied pumpkin seed fish, go figure. And what he did is he observed them in their home, in their freshwater pond. He observed them and he noticed that when he lowered a trap into the water that some pumpkin seed fish immediately swam into the trap, regardless of if there was bait in the trap or not, whereas other pumpkin seed fish would um, hide in the weeds and they wouldn't approach the trap at all. And so he brought them into the scientific lab and he discovered the same thing. And so what he, he determined was that these pumpkin seed fish have personalities. And I believe wholeheartedly, of course, that children have personalities, that some are introverted and some are extroverted. So why are we not designing environments that um, that where extroverted children can thrive and introverted children can also thrive. And by the way, sometimes I'm an extrovert and sometimes I'm an introvert. So you mm, have to also, also remember that. So um, quiet vantage points, calmness with the natural world, opportunities for varied types of play. We have mm. to think about the extroverted personality as well a group personality, as well as the introverted spaces for one or two, not only inside, but outside. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it reminds me of a quote of yours. And it was like, and I think it was just a comment in passing conversation, but it was like, children are suffering a loss of habitat. Right. And that loss of habitat of childhood is, um, 
we're asking children to grow up too fast. We're asking them to learn about numbers and colors and shapes and before they learn about themselves. We are really challenging the habitat of childhood. And the habitat of childhood is right there in our backyard. It's our child care centers. It's our playgrounds. It's um, everywhere that children are. We have to remember Erica Christophus or whatever her last name is. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it right. That childhood is important. Childhood is fleeting. It's, yeah. it's a small amount of time. Why mm. are we trying to endanger childhood when that's the thing we should be protecting? We should be protecting children and protecting their their joyfulness and protecting the magic that they have and the magic that they bring to all of us. But we should be protecting that, not trying to squelch it by making them stand in line or having their own chair with their name on it or anything like that. We should be protecting the magic of childhood and making the places mm. joyful. Absolutely. Well, on that note, Sandra, on that profound mic drop moment, we must protect <laughs> childhood. There, the habitat of children is endangered. The, the the childhood experience is endangered. And just want to take a moment to thank you for all those articles that you send me that are inspiring. I'll put a link. I've shared um, a calm brain is a learning brain article with a number of people and parents. Um, so thank you for that. We'll put links to the to the books, Inspiring Spaces. Also, a great book for those educators out there, Rethinking the Classroom Landscape as well. Um, look forward to teaming up on a paper with you soon, an article that we'll, we'll be writing together. But um, thank you for being and contributing to the worthy mission of um, reaching as many children as possible. So you're amazing. I appreciate you. I'm grateful for you. And I can't wait to see where we can go in the future. I can't wait either. Thank you so much for the opportunity.